Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to um, One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods and I'm very pleased to have as our guest today Dr. Richard DeVal who is the head of the Leadership in Medicine program at the College of Medicine at Texas A&M Health Science Center and a practicing psychiatrist. Um, Dr. DeVal, could you tell us a little bit more about your position at Texas A&M? Yes, I'm a professor of psychiatry and family medicine um, and my principal responsibilities are teaching in a family medicine residency program because these days a lot of psychiatric care is provided by generalists. Uh, and I also am responsible for a program called Leadership in Medicine in the College of Medicine where I teach medical students. You had mentioned that a lot of our uh, mental health care is provided by either primary care physicians or pediatricians, um, and I'm just wondering what you think has contributed to that trend. Well, you know, that it, that's been off and on for a long time, uh, and I think that part of it is that um, generalists see a lot of depression and anxiety as an ordinary part of their practice. And in fact, uh, approximately 5% of people that come to see a generalist are there with symptoms of distress rather than disease. And so generalists really need to be savvy about sorting out that is the primary differential diagnosis. Um, and they're more than able to manage straightforward depression and anxiety. Um, and more complicated things they'll send off to a psychiatrist. And what would be the tipping point for a consumer to know when when they should go to their um, primary care physician or when they should seek out the care of a psychiatrist? Well, I think that's kind of a mutual decision. Um, what I tell the residents here is that if they feel like they can manage it, um, that they probably can. Uh, if if someone has a serious psychiatric condition, and by that I mean a psychiatric disease, uh, schizophrenia or manic depressive illness, or if someone is so depressed that they're suicidal, I really recommend that the, that the residents consult or generalists consult with a psychiatrist. Uh, and in fact, if you have... Uh, schizophrenia, or bipolar illness, which is manic depressive illness, you really need to see a psychiatrist for a lifetime and be on medication. You know, we've uh, really made some uh, major developments in the treatment of mental disease in the last 40 years. In fact, I was reflecting because I've been asked to start a psychiatric program here at the medical school. We have a clinical campus uh, at some distance from our primary campus, and I was—it's just remarkable how far we've come in the treatment of psychiatric disorders. Uh, when I was first starting out in practice, uh, most people were hospitalized. There were chronic psychiatric wards. 
Um, and it really was very much like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And in the 50s, there was the advent of modern psychopharmacology, and it just changed the face uh, of the treatment of psychiatric disorders. And I think most Americans uh, don't realize how we've come and have kind of taken for granted that there are now very effective treatments for depression and anxiety uh, and even serious disorders like schizophrenia and manic depressive illness can really be well managed and these patients don't need to look forward to a lifetime in a chronic mental institution and can look forward to you know living uh, a pretty ordinary life if they take their medicine and if they get connected and if they uh, work closely with their doctor. But how many folks in America are affected by depression every year? Well, you know, it's a, it's a surprising number. They estimate that about 19 million Americans suffer from depression. Um, and depression is a, is a terrible condition uh, that's really a syndrome. And it's usually caused by a genetic predisposition this was a very recent discovery of the actual gene by a group at King's College in London. So if you have a genetic predisposition and you're under enough stress, then you get clinically depressed, which is really a terrible kind of condition where life is not worth living and you feel helpless and hopeless and you may feel suicidal. And it's a terrible thing to go through. Uh, and there are very effective antidepressants which reverse the biochemical changes that are secondary to being depressed. The interesting thing is that the uh, gene actually is a Mendelian dominant recessive. And if you have too long alleles, you don't get depressed no matter how bad a time you're having. And so you ask somebody, how are things going? They say, terrible. And you say, how long has it been? And they say, oh, well, years. Never had a, hasn't leapt up at all. Are you depressed? No, not depressed. But if you have a short allele and you have enough stress, then you, in addition, get clinically depressed, which is a biochemical change. And that's when you feel like there's no hope and helpless and maybe suicidal. And that really requires treatment, but treatment from two different standpoints. One is that there are medications, and there have been since the 1950s, actually, that will reverse the biochemical changes so you feel somewhat better, but you also need to identify what the stresses are in your life that are making you feel depressed and to try and do something about that. So antidepressants are drugs that help the chemical changes, but you also need to work with someone to identify what the precipitating problem is. And that really makes reactive depression just like late-onset diabetes, um, where you have a predisposition that's genetic, and in most cases it's weight gain later in life that precipitates type 2 diabetes. Um, and you can take uh, drugs to help with uh, insulin levels, but you can also lose weight and possibly reverse the late-onset diabetes. So it's a, uh, it, it really is an exciting and new time in psychiatry because most of the psychiatric disorders are genetically based and are due to 
biochemical abnormalities in the brain, some of which are understood and some which are not clear yet, or severe kinds of trauma. So psychiatry has really joined the rest of the medical profession in dealing with medical entities that deserve treatment. And that's after a long history of uh, trying to um, incarcerate or hide uh, mental illness and um, assigning all kinds of strange causes, witchcraft, and, and in fact, psychiatrists at, at one time were referred to as alienists. Right. Right. I think, um, you know, it is an exciting time, and I think it's especially important that we continue to talk openly about um, mental illness and that people understand it as a brain disease. And oftentimes there's a lot of stigma attached to having a mental illness, being depressed. Um, when Mike Wallace came out being depressed, everyone went, wow, you know, he can be depressed. And for most people, it's, it's something that they're uncomfortable with. You know, that's very true, and, and unfortunately, you know, the good news is um, that we really have um, a much better understanding of how the brain works, um, have lots of very effective drugs, understand the importance, um, you know, the this is National Mental Health Month, uh, and the theme is stay connected. Uh, and that's so important because psychiatric diseases are chronic diseases. And one of the bad things is you can't just fix it. There isn't a blood test or a throat swabbed to make diagnoses. So it takes some time. You need to spend some time with the patient to figure out what's going on. And then you need to find some kind of management strategy um, that will help the person obtain best social function. Now, that means somebody has to ask for help and be willing to cooperate, um, and there's still a major stigma. We think of mental illness as some kind of, um, you know, special problem. Here in Texas, they say, pull up your sock. You know, no one in College Station, Texas, gets depressed. Well, it's just not true. Right. There are 19 million of us that get depressed every year, and in fact, a fourth um, of the general population are suffering from some kind of medical disorder or issue. Um, so that the real challenge we have is to raise awareness of mental disorders and that it is a medical condition, usually genetically based and biochemically mediated, and that there are, in fact, effective ways to help someone who's willing to participate in the in the management, feel a whole lot better. Uh, so we have a lot of work to do. Um, um, being uh, involved with Texas A and M is is that a time when people become more depressed in college, or is it diagnosed more, or is there some time in life when depression is rears its ugly head more than others? Well, you know, certainly uh, at at times of stress and. Uh, it's stressful to go off to school. I'm sorry, that's my... Uh, it's stressful to go off to school. When there are major life changes, um, you're likely to respond to the stress by getting depressed. Uh, 
It's also uh, common with aging or in the face of losses, whether it's a loss of a job or a spouse, a child. Uh, bereavement is a, a normal process. At grief is normal and restorative, but if it's overwhelming, it can lead to secondary depression. You can have both bereavement and being depressed. So yeah, when kids go off to school, uh, there's a fairly high incidence of depression in the student health services. Uh, the elderly, we just did a study here, actually, um, that found that many physicians who saw elderly patients didn't identify, or even if they didn't, did, did not refer depressed elderly patients for psychiatric uh, help or treatment. Um, and that's uh, kind of upsetting because while the 12% of the population is over 65, uh, 16% of the suicides occur in people over 65. So there, there, is, there is no doubt that we're not yet uh, aware enough of mental disorders and, more importantly, that they can be treated. But there's another problem, too, which is our health care system. There are 43, people, 43 million Americans without adequate health insurance who are really disenfranchised from all kinds of medical care, including good psychiatric care. And we'll be right back to talk with uh, Dr. Richard Duvall, the head of leadership and medicine program at the College of Medicine at Texas A&M Health Science Center and a practicing psychiatrist. We'll talk with him more about the um, evolution of mental illness and what effective treatments are for mental illness and other aspects of uh, mental health. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Ladies, are you looking for a place where you can talk candidly about anything and everything? Well, here it is. Timeless Women Speak on the Voice America Women's Channel. We'll talk about sexuality, age-proofing your career, finding your passion and purpose, keeping your brain power, keeping your marriage fresh, dating for grown-ups, plastic surgery, surviving our beauty culture, and much more. Tune in Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific to Timeless Women Speak with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly on the Voice America Women's Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. 
Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Um, today we are talking about mental health and the awareness of mental health as a major contributing factor to uh, disease in America. And uh, in our last segment, we were talking about um, depression affecting at least 19 million people in America. And some, for some of us clinicians, uh, we have kind of been taught to differentiate between depression and dysthymia. And there's been kind of an urban legend that dysthymia is something that is, you know, people just have and we can't do much about. And, um, you know, oftentimes insurance uh, will not uh, reimburse for dysthymia, but they'll reimburse for depression. And I'm just wondering, um, Dr. Duval, you know, if you could just talk with our audience a little bit about the difference between the two disorders and why is it with this, as a profession, do we kind of minimize dysthymia when people suffer when they have it? Well, you know, um, depression is a syndrome. It's not a disease, and it's a collection of symptoms, uh, behaviors, uh, and physiologic problems that define um, a particular syndrome. And the cognitive part of being depressed is that you feel helpless, hopeless, don't have much interest in things, life is not worth living. Uh, and it's, it, it, and it's, a, it's a terrible kind of thing to experience. And it's associated with, oftentimes, uh, sleep disturbance, uh, change in appetite. So it has some physiologic kinds of concomitants. And it also oftentimes involves withdrawal. You're just not interested in doing things, um, and you're oftentimes very difficult to live with. And what differentiates a depression from a bad day or being irritable uh, or even grief is that it, it is constant. It's like weather. Uh, it's all the time. And if, if something good happens, it doesn't make any difference. You, you, you don't change. Now, there are different causes for depression. You can get depressed because you have a chronic illness. You can get depressed because you have a depressive disease like unipolar depressive disorder or manic depressive disease, which is a periodic uh, experience of being depressed that is not very reactive to the environment. It's kind of internally based and genetically driven. Dysthymia describes a condition of mild depression, but depression is really depression, and it's usually pretty chronic. People who are dysthymic really suffer, um, and it, it's a matter of degree. Some people who are depressed are mildly depressed. They're not suicidal. They just are don't get much pleasure out of things, uh, and it's a miserable kind of condition. Some people who get depressed stop eating, can't take care of themselves, and literally need to be hospitalized. There are two reasons to put somebody who's depressed in a hospital, and one is that they're seriously considering killing themselves, and having suicidal thoughts is a normal part of being depressed, or if it gets so bad, they cannot literally take care of themselves. They just totally lack interest. So it is really a spectrum disorder, but it is a miserable disorder. Uh, and people who have dysthymia 
are certainly unhappy people, and they too can respond to the two things that we know really help people who have the depressed syndrome. One is there are very effective antidepressants, and in fact, all of the classes of antidepressants are effective in large populations, and the key is to find one that works effectively in the individual patient. We're all very different, and it's really important to work closely with the patient to find the right antidepressant, and then to try and identify those things in the person's life that are making them depressed. You know, for instance, we know that people who have losses early in life are more predisposed to experience the stress that precipitates depression. So counseling can oftentimes be extremely helpful and may be the most helpful part of the intervention for somebody who is clinically depressed. Now, if you have a depressive disease, like bipolar disease or unipolar depression, this is driven principally by genetics and a chemical imbalance, and you oftentimes need to take medication just like you would if you were a juvenile onset diabetic and need to be followed by a psychiatric specialist, just like you may need to be followed if you have juvenile onset diabetes by an endocrinologist. Before going to break, you you were mentioning the um, the high rate of um, suicide in people 65 and older. And with mental health awareness, is it it's really we have to make clinicians as well as the general public more aware. You know that's precisely right. You know the residents, I say, look, you know, clinical depression makes any kind of illness more difficult to treat. And I said, and and here's how difficult it is to make a diagnosis of depression. You ask the patient, are you depressed? And if they say yes, it's about 95% accurate. If they say yes, you say, what's it like for you? And you want to be sure that you don't confuse uh, being emotionally labile. There are folks who are up and down, you know, they feel great and then for a few minutes, and they just feel terrible. And if you ask them, well, how long do you feel really terrible? They say sometimes 20 minutes. Well, this is not clinical depression, obviously. Mm -hmm. And the other major differential diagnosis is in a loss. When we are bereaved and going through grief, we have periods of really feeling down and feeling despair and helpless, hopeless, so forth, but it doesn't last very long and is usually triggered by memories of the person who's lost. And it is a continual process, which means that there are ups, but there are breaks, and you feel reasonably good, and then something happens to remind you of the person who's lost, and you feel down again. That's the normal course of bereavement, and that's not clinical depression. Clinical depression is being down and staying down, and the formal time is at least two weeks defines clinical depression. But it is the, what physicians need to do is to simply ask their patients, with your problems that you're going through, are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling anxious? Uh, and the patient knows. They'll tell you. So is you're absolutely right. 
Huh? Is there something different we need to do in in terms of assessing our older population? Do we need more standardized assessment, or is it just a protocol of of assessing period for depression in people sixty five and older? Well, you know, I I I don't think that uh, depression is picked up nearly as often as it should in any age group. Uh, this was kind of striking. Um, but I think it's generally true. Most, and part of it is that that we're uh, not taking enough time, in my view, with patients. You know, we we feel like we only have a few minutes. We want to deal with the chief complaint. Uh, we want to uh, rule out illness, which I think is absolutely the wrong approach in general medicine. I went into psychiatry, by the way, to teach uh, young people uh, how to be better doctors. Because the technical intervention is not the challenge in medicine; it's working effectively with the patient, uh, so that they can use what they need to do to feel better. And it's not to rule out disease; it's to rule in what the problem is. So, what general physicians really do is define what's going on and what they can do and what they can't do. It really makes it hard with this healthcare system to do that anymore. Well, you see, I think our health care is in terrible shape, um, and I, th- I think we're going to see some um, a major upheaval uh, because it has, in, in my view, become a big business, and medicine really can't operate as a business. It ought to be business-like, but it really is a serving profession, which is quite different. Uh, and you're going to get me started here. <laughs> That's fine, <laughs> because, because I totally agree with you. So. <laughs> because medical ethics really define what it means to be a doctor. Uh, and that's based upon the ethics of the doctor-patient relationship. Um, and, there, and the ethics are based on the fact that the, the doctor's social role is to determine who's sick and who isn't. And if you determine somebody is acutely sick then there is a very specified role for that patient and for the doctor. And there's a very high bar. You're supposed to put the patient's interest first. Now, this is only if somebody is acutely ill. But that's kind of the model that we teach. And yet most of the problems that we have are either chronic uh, or distress-based rather than disease-based, and the acute disease model doesn't fit at all. And we have a lot to do in medical education to prepare doctors to be effective in helping people. Uh, And the ethics of being a physician are not business ethics. They really are professional ethics, which are quite different. You got me off the track, didn't you? Yeah, but you know, that's part of, in, in my estimation, that's kind of part of the awareness that we have to go back to and and almost advocate for, because people with mental health issues don't get the treatment that they need. Well, and and part of that is precisely that. You know, what I tell students that are coming through, the, the, the great lessons that you'll learn in studying psychiatry is how to take care of most people, because most psychiatric conditions are chronic. They're not acute. It's not fix it by the doctor. It's forming a partnership with the patient to help them manage whatever problem they have better so that they can have as normal 
a life as possible. Well, and I think surgeons are the only people who really are truly working with acute illnesses day in and day out. For the most well, part. It, 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 that's true. The uh, you know, and and that's one of the reasons um, that people specialize is that they feel comfortable in treating diseases and they want to treat acute diseases. Right. And one of the problems in our healthcare system is that we have a whole lot of specialists, uh, and a specialist, if he's just a specialist, is not a real doctor. He's just providing a specialized service to support general medicine. Uh, and it's fee for that service or pr- procedure, and he tends to rule out disease. Right. And one of the reasons our healthcare system is inefficient is that we send people uh, to doctor to doctor to rule out disease, and if 65% of people that go to a doctor feel sick because of problems in living, uh, ruling out disease is not going to be helpful to them. And we'll be right back to learn about what will be helpful and how we can educate ourselves and our physicians and be good, informed consumers. We'll be right back. Steps to a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Would it be crazy if you just stopped everything, packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? Would people think you'd lost your mind? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? A village crowded with Buddhist temples, not skyscrapers. A place where there isn't a word for recluse, but a thousand words for community. Would it be crazy to go 5,000 miles from home? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To build libraries and fill them with stories? Prepare a meal with food you helped grow? To teach children? and learn a thing or two about yourself. Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit peacecorps.gov. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour 
the time. We're talking with Dr. Richard DeVal about uh, mental health awareness. And prior to going to break, we were having a really good conversation about the healthcare system in general. And it's important for everybody to understand that there's been this artificial separation of the brain from the rest of the body by managed care and by our insurance companies. And as a result, people, whether they're providers working with, with clients or individuals and families, really do not have access to the type of care that's going to help them manage their mental illness or their other physical illnesses. And oftentimes what's going on in the brain is connected to something else that's going on in the body as well. So um, having said all that, Dr. Duval, what can people do to advocate for themselves um, and how can they, what, what treatments are available to really, that the people should be aware of so that they just don't get a one-size-fits-all type of intervention? Well, you know, the, in order to get uh, good health care in our current system, I really think it's, it's important uh, for people to find a good generalist that they like and feel comfortable with while they're well and can get, so they can get to know them and when they have other kinds of illnesses can refer them for specialist help and oversee the, the the whole patient. We've really splintered. So people say, well, I've got a headache. I'm going to go see a neurologist. Um, and there isn't anybody that's kind of overseeing um, the family or the individual. So I think that the importance of the generalist has, has never been greater. Then I, the other thing is that I think that patients should really be anxious <laughs> to tell the physician what's really bothering them. Uh, there are great pressures on doctors to uh, see patients briefly, to rule out disease. Uh, gosh, the good uh, doctors that I know, are their practices are overcrowded. If they take a little bit of time to talk to patients, they uh, are flooded. And I think you need to use the time with the physician as well as you can and be sure they understand that there are other issues besides your stomach pain that are going on in your life. And, and we really have created a system that doesn't work very well. The incentives as far as payment are not in taking time for the doctor to talk with the patient, but the insurance companies reimburse procedures or diagnostic tests. Uh, and those are powerful drivers. Economic drivers are very powerful in any system. Uh, and we need to somehow uh, change those priorities. And if I had answers to, the, to these kinds of problems, I wouldn't be sitting here. But there isn't any question that we've created a system that doesn't work very well. And oftentimes insurance companies will not pay for uh, psychiatric conditions, um, which is it, it's, it's really self-defeating because... In a, in a recent article that was published at Hopkins, actually, they demonstrated that the stress of a loss can cause congestive heart failure. Um, and, in, and in fact, the differential diagnosis when somebody walks into a patient's or a, a, a doctor's office is, is, is this a symptom of distress or is it a symptom of disease? And either way, what can the doctor do and what does the patient need to do to be effective in the intervention. 
Um, and we've really kind of gotten to the point where most physicians are looking for an acute, treatable problem that they can take care of with a passive patient and bill it out. And if the vast majority of problems don't fit that, what kind of care are we getting? Obviously not very good care. You know, if we can't, you know, I, I think as consumers and as practitioners, we all have to have a stronger voice in trying to encourage the demise of the current healthcare system. And quite frankly, I'm kind of looking forward to the time when this all kind of collapses and we can build something new out of the ashes of, of this. And, and to go back to your point, uh, I'm a registered nurse, and when I was trained as a nursing as a profession, it's not a management. You don't go to learn. To do, I didn't learn nursing management. I learned nursing care. Exactly. And, and it's it's distressing for me to go to a hospital now and um, and look at the quality of, of nurses. It's like they don't know how to take care of people. They know how to yeah. manage things. Exactly. They know how to? Um, they don't even know how to give good technical care. You know, it's. Um, it's really sad, and, and, you know, I'm glad I know what I know because I can advocate for myself and my family and, and, my, and our participants at Westbridge, but, um, you know, the, this whole system is... is well, I think there are three major factors, frankly. One is medical education doesn't really prepare uh, physicians for general medical practice, and they also are so far in debt... Uh, that they tend to go into the higher-paying specialty areas. So we don't have very many general doctors who know how to practice and take care of patients. Um, We've also become big business. There is a lot of money in medicine. Um, It goes principally to hospitals, which I think is really ironic because a hospital used to be a place where doctors provided care to patients, and now they become big business. Um, as are drug companies who make fortunes. Uh, and there aren't, there really don't have insurance companies. We have insurance programs that spend exactly. literally billions of dollars a year selecting uh, people who are healthy because 10% of the population have 90% of the health problems. Right. And so if they can select uh, paying customers who don't require medical services, they can make a big profit. Right. So we've really kind of developed a monster, and I think something might happen because of, of two things. One is that it's eating up our gross national product, and it's making us non-competitive in the business arena. Um, and it's kind of interesting, just as a historical note, that uh, back following the Depression, there was um, a plan brought forward that would provide care on a regional basis, which makes sense, that would be transportable, it would be underwritten by the individual, by business, by government, state and national, uh, and it would be a universal care system. And it was fought mightily and defeated by big business that wanted to make health care benefits uh, a part of the competitive package. And I think that uh, now big business is really suffering from the fact that these costs have gotten out of hand and we're no longer competitive because, in part, of medical care costs. Right, right. With, so uh, I think we're... Go ahead. 
So I think we all need to get together. We've got a real problem here. We're not taking care of 43 million people, and uh, our health care system is not that good. We rank about 40th by the World Health Organization, um, and it's two-plus times as expensive as the next most expensive system. And there's all kind of mythologies uh, out there about how great we are, because there's lots of people making big money. Right. And uh, I happen to agree with you. I think we're going to need to just, we need this system's not broken. It just needs to be rebuilt. Right. Right. Well, you know, I know in um, NIDA and NIAAA do probably 90% of the research on addiction in the world. And my sense is that the National Institute of Health does a large percentage of it, uh, research on mental health as well. Um, I'm not sure whether that's true or not, but it seems like where all this research is being done, we ought to be able to reap the benefits of it as the taxpayers that... Well, you know, the the, uh, the academic departments of psychiatry uh, all over the country have really done some wonderful research, um, and federal grants have really funded a lot of that. And I, and I think we can be very proud of the investment that we've made in understanding medical illnesses. Um, I wish we would uh, spend some of that money on how to provide a better system of medical care. But there really have been great advances made. Gosh, in, in, uh, in my professional lifetime, the, under, the black box was the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we understand a whole lot more about how the brain works and have a lot of effective drugs that have come out of uh, academic research and NIMH research. Um, and it's, it, it's an exciting time. There are breakthroughs being made all the time. Uh, what, lags be- what lags behind is the public awareness, and that's why I'm very happy to be involved in, in uh, the National Mental Health Awareness Month. We need to understand these are treatable diseases and we really have therapeutic measures to do something about it. Great advances made. And we'll be right back to talk about some um, other types of interventions that are effective for treating mental illness. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. To savor something means to delight in, to absolutely enjoy. So why not savor yourself? Author and internationally acclaimed speaker Doris Smeltzer brings her message to the airwaves with Savor Yourself, Beyond Skin Deep. Plan to spend an empowering hour with Doris where you will learn to recognize your worth and your beauty beyond society's limited one-size-fits-all mentality. Savor Yourself with Doris Smeltzer, Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. on the East Coast, only on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned 
common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desk, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh. There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Um, in our final segment today with Dr. Duval, we would like to talk um, a little bit about the focus of Mental Health Awareness Month this year, which is um, the importance of being connected socially uh, for folks who experience mental illness. And oftentimes when somebody is depressed or anxious, we tend to leave them alone. But if somebody has a major uh, mental illness, such as bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, they're kind of ostracized by the whole community. And it's it's kind of ironic that um, in some ways that mental health awareness is about being socially connected when oftentimes society doesn't reach out to these folks. So how, how do we know that, that this is effective and how can we get people to reach out to these folks more? Well, you know, I, th- I think one of the reasons that Mental Health Month, which, by the way, was created more than 50 years ago to raise awareness about mental health conditions and the importance of mental wellness for all of us, uh, is stressing get connected because it's an important part of the management of mental issues. Um, this country, I think more than many, Although historically, people that have been seen as having problems have been shunned or hidden. There's always been stigma attached to psychiatric disorders because the realization that they really are medical conditions that are genetically determined and biochemically mediated is a relatively recent documented fact. Um, But what is true um, is that at at one time, we placed people with mental illness in asylums. And it started in the Middle Ages, and they were basically custodial and to get people off the street because they were insane. And at the beginning of the 19th century, the um, mental health hospitals attempted uh, to be therapeutic. And there was the introduction early... Um, in the 20th century, of uh, lithium was found to be effective in manic depressive disorder, and there was electroconvulsive shock therapy, which actually was very effective uh, for depression. And there were efforts to try and help take care of patients. But people who had uh, psychiatric diseases like schizophrenia or manic depressive illness were out of touch with reality for long periods of time. 
and would end up in asylums for long periods of time and, and just being in the institution itself uh, caused them to be de-skilled, if you will, as far as being able to get out and be in the community. And with the advent of effective medications to treat psychotic illness and other illnesses, especially depression, we literally emptied out our chronic psychiatric wards and created then community problems and tried to respond to that with community centers. But the, the real challenge, I think, in uh, treating effectively mental health disorders is to first identify them and diagnose them correctly and to be sure that the person is on the right kind of treatment regimen, which is a combination of, if there are effective drugs, getting the family involved, uh, getting the community involved, and seeing these people as folks who need help. And all of us are going to need some kind of help in this area sometime in our lives. i got to tell you a quick story. I've got a cousin, uh, and I'm originally from Iowa, and so is my cousin. And his son ended up being schizophrenic, and it was discovered after he'd been quite successful um, as a young man. I was a college graduate and had a job. And my family back in Iowa was really ashamed of this. And my cousin, who's really a good guy, didn't know what to do, how to be helpful, and would try and get involved in his psychotic delusions and beliefs, and it was at his wit's end. And and I'm a I'm a psychiatrist and I've always been close to him, and he says, Rich, he said, I just don't know what to do. He said, I'm ashamed to admit this, but my son is schizophrenic. And I said, gee, cousin, <laughs> you know, schizophrenia is just like diabetes. He needs to get to a good psychiatrist, get on some good medication to prevent the psychotic episodes, um, and then if he starts to get crazy, you don't get involved in that. You say, son, you're getting crazy again. Go back to your doctor and get some more medicine, just like you would do if he were diabetic. Well, it was an amazing transformation. I got the most moving letter from my cousin who said, my God, I've got my son back. Uh, he's got a job. He's seeing a psychiatrist. He's taking his medicine. He's gotten involved in uh, outside activities. Uh, he even got involved in the political race. And he said, I just, I just can't believe what a wonderful thing has happened just because I understand that he has a medical condition that I can help him with rather than being ashamed and not knowing how to deal with a crazy son. Um, and that's where we need to get. Um, it, you, this, uh, again, uh, psychiatric conditions on the whole are not fixable. Uh, they're manageable, and it takes professional help. It takes family help. It takes community help. And so this theme of get connected is absolutely right. And the first is to connect with the fact that mental health issues affect a whole lot of us. I mean, one quarter of the population is dealing with mental health issues in any given year. Um, and to see that people get connected to the proper care and then get connected and keep involved in social function. It's the old story. If you don't use it, you lose it. 
And we found that if we incarcerated people, that they lost social skills because they just didn't use it. So they had two problems. They had the psychiatric condition, and then they had the uh, problems that come from chronic institutionalization and uh, not using social skills. So we need to not shun, but to embrace and help. And I think it's interesting that we go around and ask each other how we're doing, and we always say, fine. Well, not not many people are doing fine. And I think it's also important to remember that anyone who has a mental illness, they're more than the symptoms that they're presenting. They have dreams and they have personalities and they have strengths and um, and they're often very enriching and, and that um, oftentimes people see the symptoms and they back away and it's just important to move beyond that and you will find your life enriched as well. That's that's exactly right, and I, I love to contrast the movie that was Oscar award-winning, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, about the insane asylum in the 50s, right. to The Beautiful Mind, which right. is the story of a schizophrenic uh, that was made in the mid-90s that, who won the Nobel Prize in economics. Right. Uh, and my gosh, we've come a long ways. And that was a real tribute. He was not so much... Uh, treated with meds, although they helped along the way. But it was a very strong marriage and a very supportive environment at the university he was at. Um, A real tribute uh, to the power of involvement and support. And we do know from research that one of the um, primary causes for anyone to get better in the mental health is the relationship they have with their provider. And that's one of the most significant things that helps people get better. That's exactly right. You know? That's exactly right. So with Mental Health Awareness Month, um, it's important for us to stay connected and get connected. And if we know people who are experiencing mental illness, reach out and find a way to um, enrich their lives and your own. Um, this is a very powerful way to help people heal from their mental that, that's exactly right. These people do not need to suffer in silence. There really is help, uh, but everybody needs to get involved. I want to thank you, Dr. Duval, for being our guest today. Um, it's been very enlightening, and uh, I especially like the part about the health care system. <laughs> well, don't get me in too much trouble, Mary. <laughs> I've enjoyed talking with you. <laughs> thank you, and have a good week. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.